Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Pork Wenton. And welcome to the 140th episode of the Nauticast titled Inferno Part 2, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Davos 3, in which Davos Seaworth and the Baratheon fleet sail into Blackwater Rush and defeat the Lancer fleet. Nothing else happens. Okay, this is going to be a pretty kind of short chapter, right? I think, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that sounds quite boring, Jeff. You know, I seem to recall something different happening Hmm. in season two of the show on which these books were based. You know, Uh, the show came first and then they wrote the books. Game of Thrones ruined uh, A Song of Ice and Fire or Song of Ice and Fire ruined Game of Thrones. Whatever it is is that actually happened. Someone ruined something and we are very unhappy about it. Good. We've set the tone. All right. We're going to be very unhappy with Tyrion of House Lannister here. There Um, we go. Anyways. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Tr- Troubleshooter of Systems, the Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the Seven Seas, and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, uh, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbishop June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince, Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Worthy East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, The King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Gent, True Master of the Bayfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the ADs, and Gentle Dems, Haldiver, the Waiter for Tewell, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Avoric, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh no, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Ola, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean, The Splendid, Master of Coin, Warden of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, The Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, The Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Bone Way, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, Squire Matt as Future Matt as the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of Feel Good Times. Got your name right. 
Oh, got it. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author of the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and the patron of free wheeling bisexuals. Thank you to all of our counselors for your, all of your support. Thank you to our counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially talk about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, who asks, If Lightbringer is demonstrably a false sword, then how do we think that portion of the prophecy manifests in the actual story? Some wildfire or dragonfire on it or magic involved, or does it not even show up? So what do you think about that, Jeff? Obviously, Stannis' Lightbringer is fake. Pretty much everything from Aemon to, you know, <laughs> common sense tells us that. But do do you think that Lightbringer is going to be realized in a more kind of dramatic, literal form in the story, even if George doesn't underline it directly? Yeah, so this is this is a great question. And I think it brings to mind this kind of distinction that George has between like literally fulfilling prophecies and not literally fulfilling prophecies. George does a really good job of doing this really well in the narrative. And I think here, Lightbringer, if it is a sword, which I don't think it is, but, you know, I, I tend to favor something like maybe Longclaw, maybe Dawn, maybe something else like the two swords that, that came off of, of Ned's ice. I, I just don't think that, that a sword having being like a very direct fulfillment of something prophetic is, is really all that uh, interesting. To, to me, rather, I think it's more metaphorical. I think that Lightbringer as a substance or thing is either Danny's dragons, which I tend to favor the strongest, or is the Night's Watch because part of their vows talk about them being, you know, being light bringers, so to speak, uh, light in the dawn and the darkness, so to speak. You even see that with like Beric Dondarrion, like he has a literal fire sword and he literally comes back from the dead and now he's gone. So that's it. And I think George was kind of, I think, and I love Beric, he's one of my favorite characters. I don't think he's there just to be a joke. But I think George was saying in part, like, yeah, here's actual Azora High fitting literally everything Melisandre's talking about. And he is a tertiary character who mm-hmm. ultimately passes on, you know, his fire to Lady Stoneheart. And our main characters are going to engage with it in a much more complicated way. And yeah, I think, you know, the the dragons, I think, come closest to anything, you know, directly being Lightbringer. But I don't think there's going to be a, you know, I don't think it's going to, it's, it, it's not like, you know, Aragorn getting the Isildur sword <laughs> reforged. You know, it's not, th- right. not there's anything wrong with that, but I think yeah. George is very specifically trying to not do that. And yeah, I agree. I think he's, he's, whatever he does with it, I think it's going to to not be literal. But I think, you know, the, the, the dragons showing up in some engagement in, in the north as they did in, in, in season seven of the show, I think you, there, I think there will be like large spectacular set pieces that will suggest Lightbringer to us. And we will go, oh, that feels like Lightbringer. And I think that's what we're <laughs> supposed to do. I think it's a great point because like, it's not like it'd be like, and it's not gonna be like John's it's gonna be from a John chapter. John Snow turned to Sansa's like, ah, all along, Long Claw was Lightbringer. Like, woo. No, nah, that's really not gonna be what what's gonna happen with the with the Song of Ice and Fire. So it's uh I, I like your idea better that we're going the reader is going to be taking on the role of of assuming what is Lightbringer, which is a uh, great, can't wait. So thank you so much, Wolfman Zach, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not a Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can become a patron and get show notes, bonus episodes like our recent episode on the Game of Thrones episode, Blackwater, merch, access to the Nata Slack, and more. 
Yes, absolutely. It was so much fun doing that Blackwater episode. Hope you all have enjoyed that. It's out for everyone now, so go ahead and take a listen to it on our regular feed. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos, he had sailed on King's Landing, doubting the plan and his fleet commander. Let's see how Davos is proven correct in just about everything in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Davos 3, Part 2. Davos looks ahead and sees galleys coming towards him, and he knows these ships from when he was a smuggler. The war horns sound again, and Davos orders battle speed. Drums pound, and Davos glances over at Swordfish, where a Sundale gives him a salute. Meanwhile, Swordfish continues lagging behind as the river widens into the bay with the Red Keep overlooking all. They would have to pass the castle to get to the harbor and then the city. But now the Lancers beat a retreat as the front line of the navy crosses into the river. Davos thinks the Lancers are trying to mitigate their numerical disadvantage by constraining them in the river and then locking them in the river with the chain. But Davos starts to notice peculiarities, let's call them. Some of Joffrey's ships were out there, but there were more, like the Lady Lyanna, that were not. They should have been out here, right? Trying to defend King's Landing? Davos tasted a trap, yet he saw no sign of any foes sweeping in behind them. Only the great fleet of Stannis Baratheon and their ordered ranks stretching back to the watery horizon. Will he raise the chain and cut us in two? He could not see what good that would serve. The ships left out in the bay could still land men north of the city. A slower crossing, but safer. Yeah, Davos, there's a lot of clues that something is very, very amiss. But then Davos sees pots of burning pitch flying at them. Most pots hit the water, but three pots hit the deck of the ship Dragon's Bane. And then there was another volley of arrows. One man jumps into the water and sinks to the bottom. The first KI of the day, but not the last, Davos thinks. Meanwhile, Joffrey's banner stream, crown stag on Goldfield, along with the Lion of Lancer and Crimson. Burning pitch explodes. The ship Courageous catches on fire and burns the men-at-arms on deck. Davos knows he's coming into enemy artillery range now as the ship pushes on. Davos's second line passes between the towers with the chains still beneath them. Matho Seaworth hands his dad a helmet just before pots of burning pitch rain down all around them. War horns continue to sound and Davos sees the first line of ships are exchanging arrow fire with the men on the walls. South of the Blackwater, Davos saw men dragging crude rafts toward the water while ranks and comms formed up beneath a thousand streaming banners. The fiery heart was everywhere through, though the tiny black stag imprisoned in flames was too small to make out. We should be flying the crown stag, Davos thought. The stag was King Robert's sigil. The city would rejoice to see it. The stranger standard serves only to set men against us. He could not behold the fiery heart without thinking of the shadow Melisandre had birthed in the gloom beneath Storm's End. And at least we fight this battle in the light with the weapons of honest men, he told himself. The Red Woman and her chart children would have no part of it. Stannis had shipped her back to Dragonstone with his bastard nephew Edward Storm. His captains and bannermen had insisted that a battlefield was no place for a woman. Only the queensmen had dissented, and then not loudly. All the same, the king had been on the point of refusing them until Lord Bryce Caron said, Your grace, if the sorceress is with us, afterward men will say it was her victory, not yours. They will say you owe your crown to her spells. That had turned the tide. Davos himself had held his tongue during the arguments, but if truth be told, he had not been sad to see the back of her. He wanted no part of Melisandre or her god. The first of Stannis' ship's devotion hits the shore and loads archers as they move to shore, holding their bows above their heads to keep their strings dry. And then prayer and piety hit the shores too. And then the knights fall upon the men, forcing them back to the ships and into the arrows. Davos sees that one of the Lannister knights is none other than Sandra Clegane as he rides up onto piety, onto prayer, cutting down anyone around him. 
Davos looks out and sees the harbor and riverfront are still in burned ruins. He realizes that he can't land there and he notices Trebuchet sitting beyond the mud gate atop Visenya's hill. And then there's the sound. Two galleys crash into each other and two, then two more galleys, then two more. One of Joffrey's ships was cleaved in half as Fury's forward catapult thump thumps. Men fight ship to ship everywhere. And then Davos sees the Trebuchet's arms in motion. Ashore, the arms of the great trebuchets rose, one, two, three, and a hundred stones climbed high into the yellow sky. Each one was as large as a man's head. When they fell, they sent up a great gouts of water, smashed their oak planking, and turned living men into bone, pulp, and gristle. All along the river, the first line was engaged. Grappling hooks were flung out, iron rams crashed through wooden hulls, borders swarmed, flights of arrows whispered through each other in the drifting smoke, and men died. But so far, none of his. Black Betha swept upriver and sound sounded her and the sound of her oarmaster's drum thundering in her captain's head as he looked for a likely victim for her ram. The beleaguered queen Alisane was trapped between two Lannister warships, the three made fast by hooks and lines. Ramming speed! Davos shouted. The drums start pounding and Black Betha flies into battle. Allard Seaworth brings Lady Maria beside Davos and they move toward the three ships tangled against one another. Davos prays to the warrior to bring the enemy around broadside and the warrior grants Davos his prayer as Black Betha and Lady Marius smash into the side of Lady Shame, which is a Lannister ship, obviously. They impact so hard that Davos almost bites his tongue off and Davos calls himself a fool before realizing that this is the first time that he's ever rammed another ship in his entire career. His archers fire and then Davos orders Black Betha back as the Lannister ships fall to pieces and men spill into the water, screaming for help as they drown. And then a brand new color arrives in the battle. A flash of green caught Davos's eye heading off to port and a nest of writhing emerald serpents rose burning and hissing from the stern of Queen Alisane. An instant later, Davos heard the dread cry of wildfire. He grimaced. Burning pitch was one thing, wildfire quite another. Evil stuff and well nigh unquenchable. Smothered under a cloak and the cloak took fire. Slap at a fleck of it with your palm and your hand was aflame. Piss on wildfire and your cock burns off, old seamen like to say. Still, Sir Emery had warned them to expect the taste of the alchemist's vile substance. Fortunately, there were a few true pyromancers left. They will soon run out, Sir Emery had assured them. Davos pulls his ship out and Allard gets Lady Maria out too as burning wildfire covers Queen Alisane. Men burning with green fire jump into the water, shrieking as spit fires from the walls of King's Landing fire death into the water and more trebuchet boulders are hurled from Visenya's hill. One hits the ship, bold laughter destroying it instantly. Through the black smoke and swirling green fire, Davos glimpsed a swarm of small boats bearing downriver. A confusion of ferries and wherries, barges, skiffs, rowboats, and hulks that looked too rotten to float. It stank of desperation. Such driftwood could not turn the tide of a fight, only get in the way. The lines of battle were hopelessly ensnared, he saw. Off to port, Lord Stefan, Ragajana, and the swift sword had broken through and were sweeping upriver. The starboard wing was heavily engaged, however, and the center had shattered under the stones of those trebuchets, some captains turning downstream, others veering to port. Anything to escape that, crush that crushing rain. Fury had swung her aft catapult to fire back of the city, but she lacked the range. The barrels of pitch were shattering under the walls. Scepter had lost most of her oars, and Faithful had been rammed and was starting to list. Davos took Black Betha between them and struck a glancing blow at Queen Cersei's ornate carved and gilded pleasure barge, laden with soldiers instead of sweetmeats now. The collision spilled a dozen of them into the river where Betha's archers picked them off as they tried to stay afloat. Mathos shouts to Davos that a Lannister galley is coming to ram them and Davos orders a starboard turn. The Lannister ship only glances off Black Betha and Davos orders his men to board the ship. 
Grappling lines are thrown and Davos leads the assault himself and meets the crew of the Lancer Whiteheart in battle. Davos and his men-at-arms fight their way across the deck, sweeping Lancer bros off the ships quickly. During the melee, a Lancer guy comes up behind Davos and attempts to swing an axe at him, but it only glances off his helmet, and Davos runs him through with his sword. The Whiteheart now belongs to Davos, and they are in the calm and they are the calm within the storm of battle around them. Davos surveys the chaos around, seeing all the ramming, boarding, ramming, watching as the true Baratheons take another of Joffrey's ships. He turns back and sees that the entire fleet has entered the river now. Only Salador San's ships remained outside. Sure enough, they would control the Blackwater. Sir Emery will have his victory, Davos thought, and Stannis will bring his host across. But gods be good, the cost of this. Captain, sir! Mathos touched his shoulder. Oh man, you just know what's about to happen. I, I know it, you know it, but I'm going to let George tell it. It was Swordfish, her two banks of oars lifting and falling. She had never brought down her sails, and some burning pitch had caught in her rigging. The flames spread as Davos watched, creeping out over ropes and sails until she trailed ahead of yellow flame. Her ungainly iron ram, fashioned after the likeness of the fish from which she took her name, part of the surface of the river before her directly ahead, drifting toward her, and swinging around to present a tempting plump target was one of the Lannister hulks floating low in the water. Slow, green blood was leaking out between her boards. When he saw that, Davos Seaworth's heart stopped beating. No, he said. No, no! Above the roar and crash of battle, no one heard him but Mathos. Certainly the captain of the swordfish did not intent as he was on finally spearing something with his ungainly fat sword. The swordfish went to battle speed. Davos lifted his maimed hand to clutch at the leather pouch that held his finger bones. With a grinding, splintering, tent-tearing crash, swordfish split the rotted hulk asunder. She burst like an overripe fruit, but no fruit had ever screamed that shattering wooden scream. From inside her, Davos saw green gushing from a thousand broken jars, poison from the entrails of a dying beast, glistening, shining, spreading across the surface of the river. The payoff, I guess, has exploded for a clash of kings. Davos orders the ship back, and they cut lines just in time before the explosion hits Black Betha, and the ship disappears as Davos is lifted into the, into the sky. Davos hits the water, spitting it out, sucking in the air, grabbing onto debris, and holding onto it for dear life. Davos watches in horror as more and more of the Baratheon ships go up in a wildfire blaze. The current catches hold of Davos, spinning him around as he tries to avoid the wildfire. He thinks of his sons, but he can't reach them now or find them in the chaos. Another huge, another huge ship blows up behind him as the black water seems to boil. I'm being swept. I'm being swept out to the bay. It wouldn't be so bad there. He ought to be able to make it to shore. He was a strong swimmer. Salador's sons' galleys would be out in the bay as well. Sir Emery had commanded them to stand off. And then the current turned him about again, and Davos saw what awaited him downstream. The chain. God save us, they've raised the chain! Where the river broadened now into Blackwater Bay, the boom stretched taut, the bear two or three feet above the water. Already a dozen galleys had crashed into it, and the current was pushing others against them. Almost all were aflame, and the rest would soon be. Davos could make out the striped halls of Salador San's ships beyond, but he knew he would never reach them. A wall of red-hot steel, blazing wood, and swirling green flames stretched before him. The mouth of the Blackwater Rush had turned into the mouth of hell. And that is A Clash of Kings Davos 3 Part 2. 
Whoa, baby, Inferno. Yeah, you named this one correctly, sir. Here we are. <laughs> it has finally happened, and I'm thrilled, just fucking thrilled to be here uh, with you, man, of course, and just thrilled that everyone is listening and, and watching, and that's, it, it means a lot to me. So, yeah, what did you make of the second half of this chapter, man? <sighs> so, imagine a dying star. It's collapsing in on itself, getting denser and hotter, until finally it explodes into a supernova. A Clash of Kings is the dying star, and Davos III is the supernova. This is the full release of all the tensions we've been tracing throughout the book. Magic, politics, military matters, it all comes together, and then George literally blows it all sky high. It's an incredible set piece in conception, but it wouldn't be nearly as effective without being focused in execution through our POV, Davos Seaworth, who watches his whole life burn up in an instant. Action scenes just don't come better than this. The thing that makes it really good in George's world is how well he times it. The rising and falling action we see of Davos and the Baratheon fleet engaging the Lannisters, the initial wildfire attack, then the initial Baratheon victory that Davos is witnessing. The Baratheons took casualties. They lost ships and men. It was not a flawless victory. And it's in that moment, in that lull of the fighting for Davos Seaworth, that it all explodes. The lull is just as important as the explosion itself. It gives the reader and Davos a breather, but it's that false type of breather. It's the Rohirrim sweeping the field of the orcs besieging Minas Tirith only for the Haradrim and the Oliphants to show up. But this time, there is no ghost army coming to save the day, I guess in the movies. There's only the Jade Holocaust and one man's faith in his king and cause blown overboard and run up against the Iron Chain. Mm, perfectly said. That's exactly the, the, the tone of this chapter. It's, it's, it's quite a switch. We wanted to handle all the great, the great military build-up matters that you handled so well last week. And then it just gives way in this part of the chapter. So Davos watches as the Lannister fleet approaches, as where we left off last time. He's thinking about how well he knows these ships and their captains. It's not because he's a Navy nerd. It's because back in Davos's smuggler days, he had to know whether that ship chasing him was fast or slow, captained by a young man or an old one. His life depended on it. And that mindset doesn't just vanish because Davos is no longer a smuggler. It's part of him. Instinctive. Intuitive. His noble-born peers lack this information because they've never needed it the way Davos did. Their lives never depended on their wits. Once more, the fact that Davos had to work for a living has made him more competent than those who didn't. In order to survive, he had to develop useful skills. Their survival was not founded on their individual skills, but inherited wealth and status. It reminds me of that joke from Ghostbusters. I've worked in the private sector. <laughs> they expect results. Davos leveraged these skills not only to survive, but to carve out a better life for his sons. Yet that dynamic has led the Seaworth men here, following the thoughtless elites to their doom. Their individual skills do not allow them to escape the system around them. As the Baratheon fleet ramps up into battle speed, Davos's sons hold the line, but the ship Swordfish does not. A nice illustration of my argument. The Red Keep looms larger as they all draw closer. As in our introduction to King's Landing back in A Game of Thrones Catalan IV, George describes the Red Keep as a monster, as if the castle is preparing to feed on blood. This battle is all about who holds that castle, and either way, the castle kinda wins, you know what I mean? The power structure feeds. 
That imagery adds to the dread Davos is experiencing as he reads the battlefield. The Lannister ships are retreating, drawing the Baratheon ships in. Moreover, many of the best Lannister ships aren't there. Again, Davos only knows this because of his experiences as a smuggler. Imri Florent has no such experience with King's Landing, and thus, as far as we can tell, remains totally oblivious to what's happening. That's not to say Davos' experience saves him, nor his son's. He still doesn't know about the wildfire, so all he can conclude is that the Lannisters mean to use the chain to cut the fleet in two, if only. But George keeps emphasizing how different Davos' worldview is from his noble-born peers because it will make all the difference in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. As the battle proper begins, Davos keeps drawing our attention to individual men and their struggles to stay alive. Davos notes the first man to die, thinking mournfully about how many will follow him. You think Imri Florent is doing the same thing, like sipping some iced wine at the forefront of the fury? <laughs> Hell no. Davos hears men shriek as arrows find them. He feels a stab of sympathy for the men on the ships even closer to the walls than he is. I think it's difficult to separate Davos's background from his moral consciousness. Now, of course, simply growing up poor doesn't turn you into an angel. But I think Davos empathizes with the common men like this because he is aware what a fluke it is that he became a knight. There but for the grace of God goes I, as the saying goes. And for Davos, King Stannis is his god. Only Stannis has prevented Davos from being one of the nameless, unremembered commoners used as pawns at best. Yet, it is also Stannis and his cause that has put Davos and his family in this situation in the first place. That is the struggle that will become central to Davos' story in A Storm of Swords. How do I both serve my king and do the right thing? That's such a, it's, it's, it's such a great dynamic that George plays with in A Storm of Swords. And you might not get the impression that George was going to go that direction when you're reading Davos' chapters in, in A Clash of Kings, and especially this chapter, which is primarily a battle chapter. Because I think like here, it's it's a very in-between worlds feel for Davos with as he barrels down upon the Lannister fleet. The sights of the glint of golden sunlight shining off the hulls of the enemy ships. That seems to represent the way Davos sees the end point of Stannis' successful conquest of King's Landing. The end point, though, is through that fleet into the city, and then Davos' grandsons can joust with the Valerians and Celticars, as you've been, you and Davos have both been pointing out so well in our these podcast episodes. But Davos also occupies an in-between state in his status as a captain out here on the Blackwater. Davos thinks about safety in the context of whether the enemy ships were fast or slow or commanded by young men eager for glory or old men trying to survive to retirement, to retirement age. Davos is neither fast nor slow, and his ship is neither fast nor slow either. He's serving in the second line of ships on the advance, and he is also neither young, eager for glory. That was him bringing salt fish and onions to Storm's End, I think. Nor especially old either. He's not really in the place where he's about to hang up his spurs. Davos's place in the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire is always in the middle. Yes, service to Stannis, but not to R'hllor. Obedience to Stannis, but not at the cost of his soul, a la Edric Storm. Perfectly said. Edric Storm, of course, is going to be the uh, Edric Storm is going to be Davos's attempt at making serving the king and doing the right, right. thing the same. If that makes sense, like Edric mm -hmm. Storm is Davos's way of like I'm going to rescue Edric Storm 
from Stannis, and that's, you know, deliberately disobeying him. <laughs> but also, I'm going to come in with this opportunity to make you the better king you could have been. So that's Davos threading the needle, about which we will have much more to, to say in the Storm of Swords. <laughs> so you may have noticed that Davos 3 has so far completely ignored the batshit <laughs> crazy ending to Davos 2 with Melisandre and her shadow baby. I think this is another sign that Davos was not a fully formed protagonist in his own right in George's mind at this point. If one of the original POVs had seen something like that, it is all their next chapter would be about. Davos in A Clash of Kings, however, is more a window, a window onto events than he is the center of the narrative, so he only briefly mentions Melisandre. She only comes up in the context of the banner of the Fiery Heart flying over all their ships. Davos wishes they were flying the Baratheon flag, the crown stag. He believes that the people would rejoice to see it. And I think he's right, judging from what Jocelyn Bywater told Tyrion after the riot. Your eunuch must have told you, there is small love for the Lannisters in King's Landing. Many still remember how your lord father sacked the city when Aerys opened the gates to him. They whisper that the gods are punishing us for the sins of your house, for your brother's murder of King Aerys, for the butchery of Rhaegar's children, for the execution of Eddard Stark and the savagery of Joffrey's justice. Some talk openly of how much better things were when Robert was king and hint that times would be better again with Stannis on the throne. In pot shops and wine sinks and brothels, you hear these things. And in the barracks and guard halls as well, I fear. It's easy to forget that Stannis has all the raw materials for a popular campaign. Everyone liked Robert. No one likes the Lannisters. Stannis' accusation that the Lannisters led a coup against Robert carries weight. Stannis is ostensibly fighting for Baratheon restoration, but Davos notes, as at Storm's End, that the stag inside the fiery heart is barely visible. All you can see from the walls is the icon of fire, which, as Sansa told us, terrifies the people of King's Landing. It promises another sack. Remember, Stannis never got along with his brothers, both of whom flew the Baratheon crown stag. So even as Stannis declares himself Robert's heir and goes to war on that basis, his flag demonstrates his resentment of his big brother's legacy. It's an image of that crown on fire. Stannis himself might not believe in R'hllor, but the imagery of the Red God reigns supreme in his campaign, more than the imagery of his own family. Absolutely. And throughout the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire, Stannis has an enormous optics problem. And while Stannis's reputation and the lies the Lannisters and Littlefinger push out definitely aid that, let's not fool ourselves. His poor rep is almost entirely of his own making. The banner of the burning stag that Stannis took as his own, that seems to be a reflection of Stannis' belief that he needs to try a red hawk as the seven never saved him. And he's going to make that very, very literal by putting it on as his sigil. And as, you know, Stannis also reflected back in Davos 1, he knows that the Red God, that Melisandre has real power, power that he hopes to attain. And then again, because Stannis has to make it really obvious that he's thinking about what he's thinking, he changes the Baratheon banner to his own type of sigil. Now, as we talked about back in Catelyn's second chapter in A Clash of Kings, Renly has also changed the Baratheon banner, bringing in the golden stag on field of Tyrell Green. But the Tyrells are a known quantity, an entity that Westeros is familiar with. What Renly did was within bounds of how to modify scissors in Westeros. Think about Brendan Blackfish's personal sigil. That's well within the bounds. What Stannis does is introduce something strange into the mix, a symbol which tells the residents of King's Landing that they will face the fires if Stannis wins. 
Now, I've talked before about, and I know you have as well, about why the Red Wedding is so bad. It makes people like Brendan Tully unwilling to surrender peacefully. He has to fight to the death as he knows the promises of the Lannisters and phrase of safe conduct are suspect at best, but definitely bullshit at worst. But consider that the fiery heart of her lore works similarly in that it overwhelms the small stag and it, it works to kind of offset, it kind of, kind of spooks the defenders of King's Landing. The cell stores and gold cloaks, they don't really love the Lannisters, but if the optics are telling the story that they're going to burn either way, they're going to die in battle rather than die as executed prisoners that Stannis burns. I keep bringing this up about Stannis, but his reputation is one in which he's quote-unquote notoriously without mercy. So the burning stag only aids that reputation, no matter if it's not the hashtag objective truth. And this hurts his cause in the long term. And speaking of that banner, it is a strange banner after all. Yes, indeed. Davos refers to the fiery heart as a stranger's banner. That's what he calls it. And that has multiple meanings. On the surface, Davos is saying that R'hllor is a foreign god to Westeros. The people of King's Landing, by and large, worship the Seven, many of them quite fervently. They're not likely to accept the, the destruction or diminishment of that faith. But Davos's statement also resonates within the faith of the Seven. The Stranger's Banner could refer to the Stranger, the Faith's God of Death. Sansa made this explicit in her last chapter. Stannis has become the Stranger, a fearsome figure of doom and judgment for King's Landing. The people light a few candles to him, but only out of fear. Whereas the Baratheon flag might have inspired positive emotions. Oh, remember when Robert was in charge and we were okay? It looks like that's coming back. Stannis said at Storm's End that he, that he can only rule through fear. Well, okay. This is what he gets. Davos is also reflecting on how Stannis has become a stranger to him. As he thought at Storm's End, what has she done to him? Of course, as we also saw at Storm's End... Stannis is unwilling to consciously face the deal with the devil that he has made. His guilt, grief, and self-loathing is hidden away in his nightmares. So while Davos is glad that Stannis sent Melisandre back to Dragonstone, because it means they'll fight with, quote, the weapons of honest men, if only, that's not why Stannis sent Melisandre away. Stannis was on the verge of keeping the Red Woman with him, and then Bryce Karen warned him that Melisandre might get all the credit for victory. And that's all it took. Davos is the only one to appeal to the better angels of Stannis' nature because he's the only one who cares about such things. Everyone else realizes that the quickest and surest route to getting Stannis' attention is to prick his pride, fan the flames of his resentment. Stannis is happy to make use of Melisandre's powers, but not if that means she becomes the center of attention. <laughs> Stannis is all too familiar with the sensation of being passed over, of everyone preferring someone else. Stannis only just came into his power. For once, everyone's buzzing around him rather than Robert and Renly. It would be a nightmare for him to take the throne at last, only for everyone to turn around and praise Melisandre for it, just like Robert praised Ned Stark. It would be that all over again. Davos is glad that Melisandre isn't with them, and given what he saw at Storm's End, I can't blame him. But Stannis' reasoning does not speak well of his motivations. Davos thought at Storm's End that Melisandre had transformed Stannis. Crescent thought the same thing. Here we see that this is not quite the case. If Melisandre was really puppeteering Stannis, he never would have sent her back to Dragonstone. He is still in charge, for better or worse. Davos thinks that he kept silent during the argument over Melisandre. Come a storm of swords? 
he will no longer stay silent. He cannot stay silent because, again, he still has that beating ethical heart, which almost serves as Stannis's ethical heart for, for mostly for the better, as, as we're going to unpack in A Storm of Swords. And it's also just like Stannis, too, to occupy this middle ground, same as I was talking about Davos before. Melisandre returns to Dragonstone, but Stannis is keeping a Melisandre-infused banner with him as they go into battle. And it's not quite accurate to say that it's Melisandre's banner. Of course, she probably influenced the design, but really, it's Stannis's, and he owns that here at the Blackwater for Mostly Ill. Stannis, man, I mean, <laughs> I know we're like the one true reread podcast, and we're talking about this man so much here, but George goes so out of his way to make his appearance and assault on King's Landing complex when it really doesn't have to be. I mean, you can imagine a scenario where... It's Robert Baratheon or someone like Robert Baratheon coming to take the throne back from an illegitimate monarch in the form of Joffrey, some psychopathic little shit. And instead, we have Stannis Baratheon, who is a complicated, complex figure, and we're not really sure how to feel about him, at least at this point in A Clash of Kings. And he's only shown up for, you know, four chapters in, the Cla- in, in Clash, five if you count his shadow in, in Catelyn's fourth chapter. Next week, we're going to be back with Tyrion. I wonder whether there's there's a deliberate contrast to Tyrion, who George goes into an enormous amount of detail to demonstrate Tyrion's complexity. With Stannis, he's not even going to show up on page in his most famous in-narrative battle. George seemingly decided on a less-is-more approach to Stannis in the narrative, and I think it works really, really well. Why? Because as you and Sansa so awesomely pointed out, Stannis is the stranger come to judge those who see the external image. In the eternal version that Davos glimpses is an introvert, desperate for a little peace and quiet. I I could just imagine the amount of teeth grinding occurring on the south bank of the Blackwater during this point in the battle with all the noises that are just floating across the water. Regardless, as we were saying in our episode on the Blackwater, on the TV episode rather, the complexity for this battle is in not knowing which side to root for. We know that Stannis' claim to the Iron Throne is the correct one, and yet we've also seen that he's willing to use sorcery to kill people. Is that the person we want to see on the Iron Throne? On the other hand, do we want to see a psychopath in the form of Joffrey Baratheon continue to rule? Even as battle is joined, readers, especially first-time readers, not just those who might wear certain shirts, are still undecided. It's George's perfect encapsulation of gray characters and especially gray causes. Perfectly said. I think there's... There's, there's a clear need for Joffrey to go, and yet there's this tension of what's going to happen with Stannis and the deal he's making, and also just what's going to happen during the battle itself. Even if, you know, you think everything's going to go fine under Stannis, what about what it takes to get there? Which is something we're going to get into later as Davos talks about the battle. And speaking of the battle, after that brief flashback to the argument over Melisandre, Davos drags us back to the present as the fighting ramps up. And once again, I yield military matters to Jeff, who knows much more of what he speaks. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, you remember that time when I, when I kayaked up to the Chesapeake Bay when I was 14 years old at summer camp? Baby, it's time for the, me to use that vast naval experience <laughs> and apply it to the Battle of the Blackwater. I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, <laughs> sort of. I fell, out of like, I fell out of a canoe into Lake Michigan once. That's the full extent of my naval experience. So I think you're, you're already a couple of ranks ahead of me, sir. Well, we had to like we, when we were doing it. We had to like do like the uh, the the rollover procedures. What happens if like your boat turns over like in the shallow waters? And we had to train that stuff, sort of stuff too. So I'm right there with See, you. See, so, uh, I would have drowned. You're fine. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Probably not. So last time we talked about the planning that went into the battle, and now we're going to see how that shit fuck awful planning gets executed into the breach. So now we're at the point of the battle where we're no longer looking on the outside in. We are now entering into 
the enter into the Blackwater Rush proper, moving online in a full frontal attack on the Lannister fleet. Now, last two weeks ago, I referenced Daniel Sickles and briefly referenced his conduct at the Battle of Gettysburg. As I was kind of reading, rereading this this portion of the battle, it, this really kind of felt like Pickett's charge with the Baratheon fleet occupying the Confederate army role of moving online at echelon towards the objective. All the while, artillery is raining down on them as they're exposed in open space. Unlike the Battle of Gettysburg, though, the defenders are not holding a static line of defense in hopes of repelling the attackers. Instead, the Lannisters are engaging in... Let's call it a modified infantry battle number three, break contact. Again, I ain't some fucking squid. I fought in real wars. Traditional break contact would have one element provide suppressing fire to allow the other elements to kind of echelon move backwards. But this is a modified version. As Davos notes, the Lancers begin backing water and he realizes correctly that the Lancers are hoping to draw the Baratheon fleet farther into the river. But then he notices some notable absences among the Lancer ships, Lady Lyanna, Robert's Hammer, and the Lion Star. Why weren't the jewels in the Lancer fleet on the river? Because cheap bastards that they are, and especially Tyrion is, the Lannisters aren't going to sacrifice their best ships to this trap. That Tyrion doesn't fully commit to the bluff might be a fatal flaw in the planning if someone other than Imri Florent were in command here. Davos's mind starts working. He looks back and checks to see if the rest of the ships he knows were missing or closing in behind him, but they aren't. Okay, so maybe they're hoping to cut the fleet in half of the chain. Okay, but that doesn't make any sense either. The Baratheons could then land ships north of the city. Hey, that was actually references. That was my battle plan from two weeks ago. Alas, the chain isn't raised yet. The Baratheon fleet plows forward into the river. The first line comes into artillery range and they start to get hit with pots of burning pitch shot from the walls. To kind of pause very briefly and talk about those burning pots, I think Martin is likely basing these on historical fire pots. Typically, these were earthen pots which were filled with flammable liquids, set alight and hurled at opponents, typically at a static structure, location, or a mass of enemy troops assaulting a gate. We would see this primarily, the Mongols were the ones who were really good at using this, but it was also used in, in Syrian battles in the 12th century as well between the Crusaders and other forces that were fighting out there. The pots would then break open and things would catch on fire, etc., etc. You know where this is going. Here, the pots are fired in mass and moving targets on the water. They aren't very effective in scoring hits as Davos sees, but when they do hit one of the ships, they do have an impact. The danger is first to the men on the top deck who are all crowded in as part of the landing force, but I don't actually think the primary goal is to kill the men on the decks with the projectiles. Instead, the primary objective here is to hit the sails and masts with the projectiles, slowing the Baratheon ships so that they would have to go to oars against the current of the Blackwater Rush, which again is flowing against the Baratheon fleet coming into the Blackwater Rush from Blackwater Bay. And they're all trying to do this to bunch the Baratheon ships up for the wildfire explosion, which is about to occur. This ends up driving some of the Baratheon ships to start beaching men on the shore. Like I said two weeks ago, this is a really an excellent bit of innovation on the part of these, these captains of these ships because the docks are blown up, they're gone, and it does end up getting men to the north bank of the Blackwater. So three ships hit the north shore and start landing men, but then Santa Clegane leads the sally out of, I think it's the mud gaze where he comes out of. As smart and brave as those captains were in, beach, in beaching those ships, the problem is that the men coming off of the ships are in the most amount of danger immediately after landing. And Santa Clegane takes full advantage of that, sweeping his cavalry down along the shoreline, killing Baratheon men before they could mass or even form a shield wall to hold against the cavalry. I I'd honestly forgotten that, that detail that Santa Clegane rides his horse onto one of the ships, killing his way aboard the ship. It's fucking metal. And given the white cloak he's wearing, he's the pale rider, the horseman of the apocalypse bringing death where he rides. 
So, as Devo sees, few of any of these Baratheon soldiers and sailors survive the initial charge. But as Tyrion notes in the next chapter, eight ships do make it to the north bank of the Blackwater and do unload and do unload trips after Sandhill Gaines retreats back to the Mudgate. Back out on the water, Devos hears two ships ramming each other. What, what happens next is, is an intentional mess of confusion that George uses to illustrate what I think he's doing is illustrating the fog of war and how the battle moves from pieces on a map into a chaos, into the actual chaos of battle. But to kind of provide a little bit of clarity about what I think is happening, the first line of ships meets the Lancer line of ships that stopped backwatering and now presses forward now that the Brathian fleet is entering the Blackwater Russian mass. Again, the Lannister intent here is not to beat the Baratheons on the water, rather it's to get everyone tangled up in battle. Now, something that is a little bit of a curiosity to me is that I can't imagine that Tyrion told his own Lannister ship captains what he was planning to do here, because that wildfire is going to blow up and burn everything. But I'm pretty curious about what the type of orders were that those guys received. I, I feel kind of sorry for the Lannisters who are who Tyrion is just killing one way or another, either by the Baratheon ships that are ramming them or boarding them, or by the wildfire he's about to unleash. A Baratheon ship, Stag of the Sea, rams the Lannister ship, sinking it immediately, while Fury, which is the flagship, which is Emery Florin, is on, fires catapult bolts. Two other Baratheon ships, Dog's Nose and Queen Alicent, are set afire and locked in hand-to-hand -hand combat with Lannister ships, respectively. So they're boarding each other. The Lannister ships, are, the Lannisters are boarding Queen Alicent and fighting on, on the decks. Then Devo sees a Lannister ship named Kingslander cut between Faithful and Scepter. He orders his archers to fire, and the captain of the Kingslander dies. And then the trebuchets fire. So in my imagination, normally what you would see with trebuchets is that they are normally loaded with large boulders and then just thrown at, at a large structure or a large mass of troops. But here, Tyrion has the trebuchet levers loaded with head-sized boulders that come down like hail. As he notes, as Davos notes, there's hundreds of these rocks that are falling down all around them. The point again, is, as I keep emphasizing, is that the primary use of these boulders is not anti-personnel. A boulder that size flung from that distance with that amount of velocity could come straight down and make a hole in a ship, sinking it or slowing it as a projectile pierces through the decks and hull of the ship, allowing the ships to take on water. But then Devos sees a chance to relieve the Queen Alicene and he orders Black Betha into ramming speed and to ramming speed to ram Lady Shame. Man, these names. Allard sees the chance as well and Black Betha hits the ship with such a ferocity that Davos almost bites his tongue off. Ow. Davos pulls his ship back and the Lancer galley falls to pieces in front of him, which must have been quite a horrific sight. And then there's the shot of wildfire. Now, we're going to cover this a bit more later on, but here it seems the initial volley of wildfire was intended to infect the Blackwater Rush with the substance for the future. Kaboom! Davos and Allard pull their ships away from the spreading substance, but it's too late for the Queen Alicene, which goes up in green flame. Now, I'm going to fast forward the narrative just a bit here because we want to give the wildfire our full undivided attention to their next section. So, out on the water, after the rows of skiffs and junk, junk boats come at the Baratheon fleet, a Lancer galley attempts to ram Black Betha. Davos pivots hard to the starboard, which prevents Blackbeth from getting rammed. Instead, both ships are side by side, and Davos orders the Lancer galley to be boarded. Now, naval boarding is kind of a fascinating historical topic. I talked about, I talked two weeks ago about how the Romans ran legionary tactics on the Mediterranean Sea, especially against the Carthaginians. And what I meant by that was that the Romans weren't so much into the naval artillery, ram ships sort of thing. They did boarding. So they would basically go side by side with the ship, and they would jump aboard the other ship in order to take it captive and... Um, and, and fight a battle on the decks, just like they were fighting a battle on the land. And this was, again, decisive against the Carthaginians, especially in the First Punic War. 
Here we see this in practice as Davos orders grappling lines fired at the Lannister galley and then he leads his men from the front into the Lannister galley fighting hand to hand. The idea behind boarding is to kill the enemy by stabby stab or literally push them over the side of the ship into the water. Davos succeeds in taking the Lannister galley but is almost killed when someone swings an axe at his head. Now, I kind of glossed over this in the summary, but Mathis told him at one point to put a helmet on, and that actually saves his life here, because helmets may be hardly heroic, but they do save lives. But So that's basically the rundown of the battle as far as I see it. I will... I will note one detail that really stood out to me after the ship-to-ship fighting, and it's that Davos is after he's, he's boarded the ship and he's taken the ship. So it says, Davos took off his helm, wiped blood from his face, and made his way back to his own ship, trotting carefully on board, slimy with men's guts. Now, I think it's fun to imagine and see Davos as this kind of swashbuckling bro, which the show didn't portray, and I think George wants us to admire his bravery. Still, the, the horror is there, right? It remains. A deck covered in blood and guts so slippery that you had to like watch where you're, where you're stepping that's a horrific sight and probably an even worse smell the aftermath of davos's heroism lingers with me and i think even as george turns on the pyrotechnics we're intended not to marvel at the green explosion but to shrink away as men burn to death drown to death or stabbed to death horrifically that emotional tenor lingers with you long after the kind of the plot mechanics fade away and the logistics fade away. And I love what you're saying about Sandor coming, kind of riding through that fog as this pale rider, as this symbol of apocalypse and death. I think that's perfect. There's plenty to chew on here in terms of symbolism. George doesn't, George doesn't just choose any ships to land troops on the northern shore. He chooses Lord Sunglasses' ships, piety, prayer, and devotion. There are multiple layers of irony at work here. First of all, Sunglass himself is a prisoner of Stannis and may already have been executed by Selyse and Melisandre back on Dragonstone. Yet, here his men are, dying for the king who imprisoned him. Secondly, Stannis has abandoned the Faith of the Seven, for which all that prayer and devotion is meant. Those ships named in the Faith's honor are forced to fly the flag of R'hllor instead. Thirdly, all the prayers to the faith from the men on those ships and the civilians inside the walls like Sansa do not go answered. Those soldiers are promptly slaughtered by Lannister men-at-arms due to poor strategy. Finally, they are specifically slaughtered by Sandor, who warned Sansa against believing in things like piety and prayer and devotion. Lord Sunglass, like young Catelyn, believed in a just world overseen by smiling gods. But now he's going to be burned alive for a different god, and his men are wiped out by a broken man wearing a monster mask. All of this is relevant to Davos because his piety, prayer, and devotion are for Stannis, his god. He, too, is about to watch his men die for that cause. When we covered Sansa V, you talked so well about how George establishes the Battle of Blackwater in auditory terms, not visuals. Same rule applies here. Davos first hears the battle joined, the hideous cacophonous sound of wood exploding. Davos leads his Black Betha toward an enemy ship named the Kingslander. He orders his men to loose their arrows upon it. Davos then has to watch the captain of the Kingslander die, and admits to himself that he's forgotten the man's name. This stood out to me on reread. Davos is directly responsible for this man's death, and he feels that in his heart. He tries to grant this death some dignity by recalling the man's name, but he can't. So that dignity, that empathy and humanity is gone. It's a sign of how distant Davos is from his old life. 
He talks about coming home to his city. He talks about knowing every ship so well. But the plain facts are that Davos has not lived here in a long time, and he is not getting any younger. That life and everything that went with it is fading. Again, George is not choosing these ship names at random. Davos himself is a Kingslander. So he has symbolically ordered his own execution. He has used the authority of his new life to sacrifice his old life, like he accepted the loss of his fingers if it meant a better future for his sons. He has forgotten that man's name just like he has left that smuggler's life behind. Coming back on reread after a dance with dragons specifically, I can't help but think about how Danny forgets Hazia's name at the end of that book. That life is over now. George is walking a tightrope here, as you were saying. He wants to excite his audience, but also make the point that it can be unwise to think of war as exciting. So he gives us the tightly paced structure of a classic naval battle, a more, yeah, slimy blood and guts version of something <laughs> Patrick O'Brien might write in the master and commander vein, you know. Davos takes in the battlefield, makes quick decisions, he leads his men into battle, he sinks and takes enemy ships, he's doing everything he's supposed to do. But the pervasive tone of dread and horror undercuts any thrill we might be feeling. George maintains that tone with details specific to Davos. The other captains, from Imbri Florent down to Davos' own sons, are fixated on glory. Davos is the one who hears the pleas of drowning men. As a useless civilian myself, <laughs> I can still get a sense here of what you had described before about how it seems from this chapter like George himself has served when he expresses lines like, as Davos thinks, men died, but so far none of his. I can't imagine a more succinct expression of what it's like to bear responsibility for your men knowing that the battlefield involves so much chaos that you really can't keep them safe. And as usual, our, our friend Stephen Atwell nailed it in his, his wonderful essay on this chapter. There have been thousands of Waymar Royces throughout history. Brave but stupid aristocrats who'd gotten their men killed because of their fear of looking cowardly or inexperienced. It is also true that there have been thousands of Davoses, working-class, non-commissioned officers given orders by men without an ounce of their experience or ability, orders they knew to be stupid and pointless, trapped by the class structure and the chain of command, who tried in the midst of clusterfucks, foobars, and snafus <laughs> to keep their men alive. To hell with the patents of history. These men are the real heroes of any war. That's beautifully said, by, both by yourself and, and by Steve. And I'll return to a part of, of his essay that really moved me towards the the end of this this podcast. But uh, the the thing that's that struck me is, and I know it's hokey, but I recall this motivational poster I once saw, and I actually I actually found it as I was looking through Google Images uh, when I was writing this part of the document. It shows the difference between a quote unquote leader and a quote unquote boss. With the boss sitting atop a platform, directing the underlings to pull the platform forward while the leader is out in front of the men leading the way. We have a boss and we have a leader present on hashtag Team Baratheon at the Battle of the Blackwater. Davos is the leader. Stannis, he's kind of the boss here. Now, look, before you jump on me, Frank, I get it, okay? Stannis is in the rear with the gear doing the strategic oversight of the battle. But does he have to be behind the men dying in battle for him here? What made Robert Stannis' brother a legendary and successful commander is that he led from the front. And if you want to say that the king's personage is of the utmost importance, again, look at the example of Robert on the trident. He's already been crowned king at River Run. He's leading from the front and he fights Rhaegar Targaryen in personal combat. 
for Stannis' part, he does do better eventually at the Battle of the Wall that we're going to get into in about a year and a half or so when John sees the royal banner flying past him, which I think means that Stannis is taking part in the actual fighting to save the Night's Watch from Mance Raider. But as we were saying back in Davos 2, that's the last time, this is the last time we're going to see Dav Stannis on page until Davos's fourth A Storm of Swords chapters. Two weeks ago, I was batting around different ideas about who should lead the attack instead of Emery Florin, Lord Valerian, Lord Celtigar, and I think I have a new suggestion for who should have actually commanded the naval portion of the battle. You want someone with a wealth of naval experience, someone who has commanded amphibious assaults before, someone who is tactically adept and able to modify a plan when cold reality steps in and says, hey, maybe this is a bad choice to go in this direction. Let's try something else. I'm talking about Stannis Baratheon. He fought Victorian and beat him at Fair Isle. He led the amphibious assault at Dragonstone, as Davos recalls in the first part of this chapter. Why isn't Stannis out here aboard the Fury, leading the attack on King's Landing, inspiring his men as a leader, exposing himself to the same dangers that they face? Yes, I I'm aware that the naval engagement is the shaping operation. I made that point last week, two weeks ago. But Stannis has a wealth of experience to make the shaping operation successful, or to reconfigure his plan and then potentially lead the decisive operation after the shaping operation is concluded. At the Blackwater, it all goes back to the stranger imagery that's surrounding Stannis' attack on King's Landing. It's like Ned told Rob Stark, as Arya recalls, Know the men who follow you, she heard him tell Rob once, and let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. Rob Stark took that advice to heart and led from the front, winning the loyalty and love of his men, minus a few minor exceptions like the phrase Boltons and Karstarks. Davos and the crews out here on the Blackwater are Stannis' men, but the king is nowhere to be seen. He's a stranger on the battlefield. But really, this is we've all been just rolling out the red carpet <laughs> for the part of this chapter that everyone remembers. A Clash of Kings Davos 3 builds to the Wildfire Explosion, as flawlessly as the Red Wedding builds to the Reigns of Castamere, or Danny's time in Astapor builds to Dracarys. George sets it all up, and then sweeps it all away. As with the Red Wedding and Dracarys, George insists on playing fair with his audience. He follows the Hitchcockian rules of suspense, giving us all the component pieces of what's about to happen, but preventing us from putting the big picture together until it's already happening. We know that Tyrion has been hard at work on the wildfire, and Davos has told us that he senses a trap. George could have just left it there. Instead, he misdirects us. A flash of green caught his eye, a head and off to port, and a nest of writhing emerald serpents rose, burning and hissing from the stern of Queen Alysanne. An instant later, Davos heard the dread cry of wildfire. He grimaced. Burning pitch was one thing, wildfire quite another. Evil stuff, and well-nigh unquenchable. Smother it under a cloak, and the cloak took fire. Slap it a fleck of it with your palm, and your hand was aflame. Piss on wildfire, and your cock burns off, old seamen like to say. Still, Sir Emery had warned them to expect a taste of the alchemist's vile substance. Fortunately, there were few true pyromancers left. They will soon run out, Sir Emery had assured them. So the first-time reader is likely to assume that this is all Tyrion intended for the wildfire. We saw him instructing Jocelyn in this tactic after all, training the gold cloaks on how to catapult the, the wildfire at the ships. So the agonizing shock of the explosion is doubled, because just like Davos, we were led to believe that the danger had passed. Next, Davos spots a flock of small Lannister boats he refers to, disparagingly, as driftwood, thinking they can only serve to get in the way. 
This is George's beloved threefold revelation strategy at work. We were introduced to the wildfire in Tyrion 5, reminded about it in Tyrion 11, and now he uses it here. There's also a threefold structure within this chapter. First, the catapults use wildfire, and then Davos spots the boats. The tension is being ramped up. Right before everything goes to hell, there is that pause you were talking about in which Davos takes in the full sweep of the battlefield. Stannis's army is beginning to cross the river, the necessary condition for victory. Davos thinks that Stannis will take this important step forward, but he is not sure that the cost has been worth it. This encapsulates his entire story going forward as he struggles to reconcile these values. Davos has dedicated himself to this cause, trying to bring his family to paradise, and it is now that he doubts it that George condemns him to hell. The swordfish is what dooms them, of course. The ship that exemplifies how the arrogance of the nobles outstrips their intelligence, getting everyone killed. The sail of the swordfish has caught fire, giving it a nightmarish head of flame. George is drawing from Christian imagery here, the tongues of flame hanging hanging above believers on Pentecost, embodying the Holy Spirit. For the true believer, these flames offer purification, filling us with God's gift of life. I think for the lapsed believer, like George or Davos... This head of flame represents the folly of assuming oneself to be in the right, of thinking you have God's purification on your side when really you don't. And I think also, too, it's also like the baptism by fire that they talk about, like your first experience on the the battlefield is the baptism of fire because so many people who are fighting in this battle, this is their their first actual battle that they've ever been a part of. And I I also like think of it, too, like that the burning fire that's hanging over all of these ships. It kind of personifies Stannis' burning crown from A Storm of Swords. I know the cost. Last night, gazing into the earth, I saw things in the flames as well. I saw a king, a crown of fire on his brows, burning, burning Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisandre to tell me what that means, or you? And it's also the same imagery associated with Krasi's Monaclos after Drogon lights him on fire. As Danny, as Danny thinks, a lance of swirling dark flame took Krasny's fool in the face. His eyes melted and ran down his cheeks, and the oil in his hair and beard burst so fiercely into fire that for an instant the slaver wore a burning crown twice as tall as his head. Now, I'm not sure if George had the idea of the burning crown and the, uh, the burning crown first or had the the imagery from the Battle of the Blackwater that fed into the what 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 Dan, what Stannis and, and Danny saw uh, later on in Storm of Swords, but I do think that it does kind of feed into each other and represents and personas and and personifies each other. I think whether the echoes are deliberate and whether they're not, I think George is clearly obsessed with this kind of imagery because I think you know obviously we haven't directly seen Summerhall, but I bet it looked kind of like this. So uh, the Doom of Valyria on a much larger scale, this is the kind of thing George is into. And this is the kind of the most kind of skin-crawling, intimate version that we get within A Song of Ice and Fire proper. So we have the swordfish charging one of the driftwood ships. Davos sees that it's leaking something thick and green, and he knows wildfire when he sees it. As George writes it, Davos's heart stops beating. The heart banners they're flying are about to burn, as are his sons, his metaphorical heart. Davos's heart stops beating out of fear, of course, but on another level, it represents how he has become a dead man in this moment, losing everything for which he was living. He reaches for his finger bones one last time, before his luck is taken away along with his sons. He realizes now, far too late, the nature of the deal he has made with Stannis. It was ultimately not about raising them up, it was about giving them over. 
The captain of the swordfish, as Davos thinks about it, is intent on spearing something with his ungainly fat sword. The sexual metaphor is very clear. The ram is a symbolic penis, the captain of the swordfish is a horny man aiming for a, quote, plump, tempting target, as Davos describes the boat. George used similar language to describe Danny bringing the dragons back. It was a marriage of short, um, a marriage of sorts that sexually excited her and produced magical children. So in a sense, the wildfire explosion is the child of the Lannister and Baratheon fleets, produced by them coming together. Sex and swordplay, fighting and fucking, George always links these things together. The war is the metaphorical child resulting from the clashing kings. You can also see this as a parallel to as a parallel to Melisandre and her shadowy children, with the captain of the swordfish playing Stannis's role as the person who impregnates. As with Danny's dragons, George brings some of his most vivid imagery to bear on the birth of this abominable child. The Lannister ship bursts asunder. It dies as the wildfire comes to the surface, like a mother dying in childbirth, as happened with John, Danny, and Tyrion, who might be something resembling the three heads of the dragon. <laughs> George describes this ship as an overripe fruit, and that phrase reaches back to the description of Eris' wildfire pots and also forward to the blood oranges of Dorne, which are well past ripe in terms of revenge for that, you know, that civil war. Again, that, that way of illustrating how the sins of the father linger and rebound upon the children, that Robert's rebellion really is not over, <laughs> that like all the materials and emotions from it are still around affecting the landscape. The wildfire itself is described as Poison from the entrails of a dying beast, which is such powerful imagery, it makes me jealous. It again connects the wildfire explosion to the primal forces of life and death. It glistens, it shines, it spreads across the water. The reader's eyes are growing big, our hands are gripping the pages so tight they might rip. Davos lets loose with a big no and orders his ship to retreat. The oars of Black Betha slide into the water but not nearly fast enough to escape. So I've compared the wildfire explosion to the Red Wedding, but, you know, George lingers over that horror show at length over multiple chapters. Not so really for the wildfire. This has more in common with the shadow assassination of Renly. In the space of a paragraph, everything falls apart. The end of Davos's world announces itself with nothing more than a woof in his ear, and the floor literally falls out from beneath him. His ship, his sons, all the signs of his rise and fortunes climbing the ladder, it's all gone in an instant. He's back in the water from which he came, unsure what way is up, nothing left to him but his seaworth. <laughs> all he can do is hold on. And then Davos looks up and sees something that nothing in his life has prepared him for. It's one of the great magical images of the series, the eldritch horror of the shadow birth under Storm's End ramped up to a colossal scale. Fifty feet high, a swirling demon of green flame danced upon the river. It had a dozen hands in each a whip, and whatever they touched burst into fire. What is this thing, this burning light in the sky? No one else ever makes mention of it. Tyrion doesn't seem to see it. He talks about plumes of fire, not something that looks almost alive. It exists only for Davos and for us. For high fantasy fans, the most immediate reference point is Tolkien's Balrogs. For Davos, like this is like, imagine a hobbit staring down a Balrog without Gandalf's help. That's what Davos is dealing with here. 
Tolkien, of course, did not invent the notion of a furious deity wielding whips of fire. There are echoes of the Greek Furies here, as well as the Gaulish deity Agmios or Agmia, depending on the translation. He was sunburnt, he wielded a whip, and he used chains to bind his followers to him. Well, that all checks out with the imagery of the Battle of Blackwater. The fire in the sky also resembles Agni, who is the Vedic fire guy within the Hindu faith, and also a metaphorical stand-in for the, the flow of energy within the universe, the spark within us all. He is born of two fire sticks, like the, the, this, this uh, fire in the sky is born of the two fleets coming together, and Agni ultimately consumes his makers, much as the wildfire does here. He is typically represented as having multiple arms and eating all that is offered to him, which is similar to how the, the wildfire is presented. Agni is also central to Hindu wedding rituals, embodied by the fire around which the couple ritualistically move as they say their vows to each other. The sense of corruption, however, is pure Catholic energy on George's part. Stannis made a deal with the devil. This is how deals with the devil tend to work out. The very power he tried to master has turned on him. One cannot grasp fire, but that doesn't stop us from trying and burning ourselves in the process. Just ask Icarus or Quentin Martell. I tried to grasp a star, overreached, and fell. That Promethean fire of the gods is too much for the human heart in conflict with itself to handle. The captain of the swordfish just proved it. So that inferno is R'hllor. Or rather, it's as close to R'hllor as we're going to get. <laughs> An elemental force, a godlike avatar of flame. The key line here is, the demon was eating his own. In the moment, it refers to the wildfire destroying Lannister ships, as well as Baratheon ones. But it also suggests that R'hllor will happily feed on its own followers. From the very beginning, with the arrival of Autumn, a clash of kings has been about a changing world. The forces of wonder and terror are reshaping the landscape, along with every individual soul. We've seen flashes of that transformation at Storm's End, at Winterfell, at Craster's Keep, and the Fist of the First Men. Now we see it in full. The political expansion crashing headlong into the magical expansion. Both kinds of power giving birth to the fiery ladder. And the very river seems to boil. So good, man, and yeah, I had never like seen what you were. <clears throat> I had never seen what you were talking about with the, the the demon looking with multiple whips around himself. And wow, that's 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 awesome imagery. And yes, definitely, I think that George is going for the personification of her lore here. And I think the imagery thereafter is of the river boiling is also similarly incredible. George really leans deep into his Catholicism biblical imagery. Revelation 16.3 is probably what George is thinking of. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. Even before we get Tyrion's perspective next week, we, we do see kind of the military sense of what Tyrion was planning here. He didn't only want the wildfire to destroy the ships. He wanted everyone on the water dead boiling those who managed to evade the fires of the wildfire on the water. In a modern setting, that's, this is very much a war crime. Killing sailors in the water as sailors is, is a war crime because sailors become non-combatants after they've jumped from their sinking ship. A German U-boat commander by the name of Heinz Wilhelm Wilhelm Eck was convicted and executed for killing sailors after his U-boat sank a merchant vessel in the North Atlantic. And then there's the chain that awaits him. The fleet is burning and they're chained into a fiery apocalypse by a great great chain. 
The boiling water superheats the chain now, stretching across the mouth of the Blackwater Rush, meaning that those who get swept out by the current then face a red-hot piece of metal. Ships hoping to escape are then run up against that hot piece of metal and are crashed up against it. Now, there's some possible symbolism at work here, with Davos assuming his own chain of office in the next book, with the fires of her loric sacrifice all around him on Dragonstone. But I don't really feel here that George is going for a straight foreshadowing bit. Instead, Davos has made his bargain. He's thrown him with Stannis and his fire god. He's leveraged good service to advance his family, and now he's lost his family. It's a devastating denouement in the, in the narrative, killing Davos' dreams for his sons and killing his sons all in one fell swoop. And it's not just about Davos, it's also about Tyrion. Now, finally, we understand what he's been up to. We understand the dreadful brilliance of his trap. And we will, of course, have more to say about that when we return to Tyrion's POV. From Davos's perspective, he is now being eaten alive by the mouth of hell. An image with, which resonates with my earlier references to Fire God. This is, this is Moloch, this is Mammon, this is the inferno of industrialism recast as divine punishment. Again, I get the sense Tolkien would approve of his successor. This is like, you know, uh, the forests of Fangorn burning in Isengard kind of imagery going on here. But the gods don't actually mean all that much to Davos of Fleabottom. And those are soldiers dying all around him, not priests. So while the Inferno is a spiritually significant moment, the hand of God reaching down, it's also a distinctly military disaster, in which technological changes transform the conventional wisdom of the battlefield. It reminds me of the naval clash between the Monitor and the Merrimack in the American Civil War, the first battle between ironclad ships, and this is how it was described by uh, Lieutenant Samuel Dana Green, who was serving in the Union Army aboard the Monitor. Then, mother, occurred a scene I shall never forget. Our engineers behaved like heroes, every one of them. They fought with the gas, endeavoring to get the blowers to work until they dropped down, apparently as dead as men ever were. What to do now, we did not know. We had done all in our power and must let things take their own course. It also reminds me of the use of napalm during the Vietnam War and the nuclear strikes on Japan, and these are going to be things I think that are more appropriate to discuss next week when we get to Tyrion mm -hmm. and um, his perspective on what he's done here. Above all, though, the imagery at the end of this chapter reminds me of Dulcia Decorum Est, Wilfred Owen's poem about the mustard gas in World War I. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. The end of Davos III finds George weaving so many strands of military history and religious symbolism into his own poetic expression of the horrors of war, destroying our hero's happiness and delivering him to hell. His story in A Storm of Swords is all about rising from that hell, which wouldn't be so emotionally effective without this low point. As you say, it is devastating. Yeah, devastating is... is the exact word that you feel at the end of this chapter, regardless if you're if you're cheering for Tyrion to, to win the battle or not, you feel a real sense of just emptiness. The same it's the same feeling you feel at the end of the the Red Wedding, almost. You know, I want to say just the that sense of overwhelming horror and emptiness and dread and devastation that that's enfolding around all of these characters here and. 
It's it's George at his, at his very very best in, in a Clash of Kings, even if it's only as you were saying for for just one paragraph in in the narrative. And you know, to kind of conclude this on maybe a more positive note, I, I don't know. We'll we'll see how this this ends up turning out. You were referencing Stephen Atwell's analysis of, of Davos three earlier, and something I wanted to to highlight from this is the stirring way that Steve talked about his own grandfather, Reginald Atwell from from World War II. I won't spoil what he actually wrote there, but everyone should go and read his take on Davos 3 after you finish this episode. It's stellar and moving stuff, and it makes me feel things and probably make you all feel things too. And I'm going to borrow a leaf from Steve and talk a little bit about my own family war legacy in the form of my grandfather, Franklin Hank Hartline. For for my family, the military is what we call the, the family business. We've been soldiers for three generations with my grandfather and his half-brothers starting the tradition by serving in World War II. My grandfather actually joined the army before World War II, though. He went to West Point and was serving as a junior officer who commanded a rifle company at Pearl Harbor and was heading out to play a round of golf on a bright sunny morning in December 1941. So you can kind of see where that one ended up. And later in 1945, my grandfather was battlefield promoted to lieutenant colonel and held a battalion command at the Battle of Okinawa, the last major battle of the Second World War. And amidst a brutal advance across the island, the Japanese counterattacked his battalion as it was advancing. And I'll let Robert Lecky, who was featured in uh, HBO's The Pacific from 2010, I think, uh, one of the one of the characters there, who wrote a book called Okinawa: The Last Stand, The Last Battle of World War II, described things. On the night of April 21st and 22nd, the Japanese counterattacked three times against a battalion of the 382nd Infantry commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Hartline. In one charge, Staff Sergeant David Dovell lifted his machine gun to fire at it to fire it at the enemy full trigger, severely burning his hands on the red-hot barrel. Dovell was also wounded in both legs, but survived. Meanwhile, soldiers firing light or 60-millimeter mortars elevated their small stovepipes to a dangerously close 86 degrees, dropping shells only 30 yards to their front. Colonel Hartline joined the battle, throwing grenades and firing the weapons of the fallen. And then I found another first-hand account written by a survivor of the battle from 2002, which described what happened next. Lieutenant Colonel Hartline, the former West Point football star, was awarded the Silver Star for his actions on April 21st. He deserved it. That survivor might have thought my grandfather deserved his medal, but my grandfather believed differently, thinking that his men were the ones who actually earned that medal. My grandfather never wore his Silver Star medal, even in the picture from my mom and dad's wedding from the early 80s, where he wore his dress blue, so he only wore one decoration, the Combat Infantryman's Badge. And I did post a picture there for folks who are our patrons to take a look at. Now, I, I never knew my grandfather. He died one month before I was born. But I know his, his father was a dairy farmer from upstate New York, and I have to imagine that Hank wanted a better life for himself and went to West Point and served in the Army for most of his life to achieve that for himself and his family. My grandfather later served in the Korean War, and his three sons, my two uncles and my father, all joined the army after him, serving him after him in Vietnam and in peacetime. And then my two cousins and I continued the legacy thereafter. In his analysis on Davos III, Steve concluded by saying that whenever he reads Davos III, he thinks of his grandfather, who had the nickname of Reg. Whenever I read Davos III, I think of my own grandfather, Hank. And, you know, I... It's cool to, to to think about it in that context. For us, it's a little bit happier than Davos, of course, because Davos lost all four of his sons. Whereas, thankfully, you know, my my two uncles and my my two uncles and my father lived on for for a little while at least. So, yeah, it's it, this this chapter is, is moving to me in more ways than simply what's on page. It has a personal resonance to to me, and I think the best types of fiction 
regardless if it's Song of Ice and Fire or something else, should always have some sort of personal resonance to the, to the reader. And take, throwing yourself into the narrative just makes it that much more powerful. And so I uh, appreciate what George did for this chapter. And uh, yeah, I appreciate my, my grandfather too. Thank you so much for sharing that, man. That was, that was powerful to listen to. You know, I think it's it gets back to something you were saying about how, you know, George writes in such a way that evokes those experiences, even though he didn't go through it. And I what you're saying about how Davos is relatable, because I can I'll never forget. Yeah. Reading out while talking about talking about his grandfather and I'll never forget you talking about yours. And, you know, and my own family tree is mostly made up of people who ran and hid as fast as they possibly <laughs> could, which I think is a justifiable thing on its own. But it's I don't like that, you know that the the war stories that come down through my family tree are fragmentary and mostly about powerlessness and so i just i have a different relationship to it but i i the what what always strikes me as so powerful in those stories is is that it's always everyone else who insists you're the hero and that you right. know that you get the occasional people who are up on that image about themselves and they tend to just be horrible <laughs> But most people are just like, you know, as we were reading Fever Dream for Patrons and as Abner Marsh, the main character, says about his actions in the Civil War, it was a war, it's over and we won it and I don't understand why we still have to keep talking about it. And I think that's how people who go through it actually feel. What's the Eisenhower quote? I hate war as only those who have been through it have. And um, it's, you know, I feel like I, I th- those kind of experiences I, I, I try to honor by by thinking about them and carrying them with me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, man. Well, thanks. Thanks for your words. I mean, it means a lot. And, and uh, you know, it, it's 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 you know, it's it's also awesome just doing this with you. I, I know I'm going off off script majorly here, but uh, we're <laughs> not even out. done the episode yet. Before we we start all of our our lovey dovey talk as we normally do, but it's 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 powerful to do this with you and and having your perspective as as the peacenik and having my perspective as not even the peacenik. Uh, more more, you know, peacenik is nice. Coward is the word you're looking for. You're not a coward. Fuck that <laughs> shit. You're no coward. No, no, but you know, again, like uh, you know, that's just um I don't I I I I think that's one of the great things about about storytelling specifically is, you know, I could I could I could I could, you know, I could if I had looked up in a museum of a, like a silver star and seen your, you know, your grandfather's name I'd be like, "Okay," and move on, you know? It wouldn't have the same impact and the same thing of, of reading a chapter from Davos and, and making you feel it. It's 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 why it's one of the reasons we have art is to get this stuff across as best we can. You got to feel shit in art, man. That's mm-hmm. you just got to do it. There's no other way to experience art than to feel something about it. You can't just take it objectively and just run with it. You just have to feel it. All right, enough of this emotional shit. Let's talk about foreshadowing and groundwork. Oh, yeah. So th- this is not going to be the last time that Stannis doesn't take Melisandre on campaign with him, as that's as that that's what occurs in A Dance with Dragons after as he attempts to liberate Deepwood Mott and go for Winterfell. The only difference in Dance, of course, is that Jon plays the Davos role, but Melisandre is already planning on staying at the ball anywhere, believing to, to be a hinge on the world and that she wants to absorb the powers that are there. So, uh, yeah, it's a little bit different in A Dance with Dragons, but the same sort of dynamic exists there yeah i think that's a great point george always works this triangle the stannis davos melisandre triangle he's got to keep them together in some places and and very deliberately apart in others and yeah obviously as we'll talk about when we get to dance with dragons john does play the davos role which is 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 wonderful for many reasons i think i really enjoy the john stannis relationship and i I just do think it is funny that stannis just goes all right davos isn't here i need someone who seems like they have any clue what they're doing (laughs) you'll do (laughs) it's just it's just delightful 
So, at the very end of this chapter, Davos does see that Sala's ships are safe beyond the chain. He can't reach them, of course, but they are there, and that establishes that Stannis does still have ships to take him back to Dragonstone, and of course, one of those ships will eventually take Davos back as well. So George is just dropping that in there as his little, you know, little seed that he'll he'll build on when we get to a Storm of Swords. It's fun, right? Because Saladarsan is such a fun character, you know, uh, in the narrative, and I think him surviving was George being like, yeah, I, I need some more. So I need to have some color in Stannis's uh, obviously uh, dour drab uh, exterior there. So I'm going to solid or son will, will survive there. And of course, he brings Davos back and they have that great conversation in Davos's second chapter um, where, where solid or son essentially leaves him for dead after he tries to convince Davos to sail with him away from Dragonstone, away from the madness of Stannis. But he can't do it. And uh, and and Davos goes north with Stannis for better or for worse. A lot of that still is undecided even at this point, waiting for the winds of winter just a few years, which a few days away, from, I think, whatever. All the same. And then finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, Davos reaches up and touches his pouch of finger bones for like one last time as he sees the swordfish plowing into the ship heavy with wildfire. This will be the last time that Davos touches those bones as he'll later talk about losing his luck on the Blackwater. And I do kind of wonder, like, George doesn't make this explicit, but I do wonder if him, like, actually reaching up and touching the bones as the wildfire blows up, whether he actually like, yanked it off of his his hand, so to speak, like his neck as he was kind of blown back like this, because you kind of, as an explosion, not that I know from personal experience, you kind of get blown back like that. Oh, that's interesting. And then the, the finger bones went flying into the black water thereafter. Oh, I never thought of that. That makes sense. Like, he had reached a touch of it, but then, you know, and then it came loose from him, and then he, and he can't have it again. Yeah, it's great. And it's a, it's a wonderful example of... George not leaning on a narrative crutch because like Davos's finger bones while they're like a good like little microcosm of his past it's it's like you could easily see a lazier writer like ending every paragraph of every Davos chapter with Davos reached for his finger bones and <laughs> thought about Stannis right there's a version mm-hmm. of Davos that's like that but no George takes them away after this book and then in Storm of Swords he like keeps reaching for them but they're not there and it's like ah perfect perfect character growth he has to come up with his own kind of way he can't keep relying on the past and the deal he made with Stannis he has to make a new one it's just it's just wonderful characterization I, I, I love that stuff about Davos so taking us to our theory slash discussion portion of the episode as we were talking about earlier, the one kind of glimpse we do get of Stannis himself in this chapter is Davos flashing back to Stannis making the decision to not bring Melisandre to the battle, to instead dispatch Melisandre back to Dragonstone with Edric Storm to await the plot of A Storm of Swords, basically. <laughs> so, the question we want to pose for this episode is whether we think that was the right call. Should Stannis have sent Melisandre back to Dragonstone, or would, have, would it have been more wise to bring her along for the battle? And what do you think about that, sir? Stannis is right. Well, that was no, easy. I'm sorry. I was, no, no, I. So I, I think um, this is one of those things that we, we we talked about. We talked about this a little bit in our in our post chat about the uh, when we were talking about doing questions and answers on our, our YouTube channel. So if you if you are listening to this episode, we do a uh, a weekly live stream episode, and of course we we answer questions thereafter. And we we had an extended conversation about what Melisandre's role might have been had she been on the Blackwater. And I just don't see it, right? I mean, at the Battle of the Wall, what happens there is that she uses her fire magic one time to bring down Orel's eagle. How in the world would that have had any impact on the wildfire explosion? How would Melisandre have been able to control the wildfire there? Why did she not even see the wildfire in her flames beforehand? Like, Melisandre's utility seems to be very, very limited and Mm -hmm. it's intentionally limited by George because he has often said that he wants magic and sorcery to be of a low quality as opposed to like the high magic fantasy that we see in other stories. So 
I, I think that there's a narrative factor that's limiting Melisandre that George has is doing intentionally. But at the same time, like I just don't see the utility of having, having Melisandre on the Blackwater itself. Would she have been able to redirect the green flames? I mean, Melisandre makes a lot of very extravagant claims, and she later talks about those extravagant claims when she's when she has her own point of view chapter and, and phrases that in the in the context of I need to say these like really powerful, strong things and be like really like direct and, and intentional in what I'm saying because I need to convince these people that I, that sure. I'm obviously right. And I need to make like I need to kind of overstate and, and use embellishment in order to to achieve that that purpose in those ends. And it's it's great for it's great that Melisandre is not at the Blackwater because now all of a sudden she has a rhetorical argument that she can use there afterwards. Isn't right? that convenient? That's true. And we'll, you can't falsify it because you can't go back and check. So right. yeah, no, you're totally right. That's it's it's it fits very well into Melisandre's little game where you can't even if Davos senses that she's full of shit in some level, he can't quite figure out how. Because she's just, you know, she's really impressive at managing information and, and constructing these rhetorical traps. And uh, Frank is making an excellent point in the chat that really Melisandre's battle utility is potentially just as radar because she does suggest, it's strongly suggested that she looks for danger to herself in the flames and a storm of swords. And then in the Dance with Dragon, she goes ahead and confirms that. that that's what she looks for first. <laughs> Who's coming for me? That's how she knows Davos is trying to kill her in a storm of swords. And that's how he tricks her by saving Edric Storm instead. Again, just great telling, great storytelling on Storm of Swords. Can't gush enough about uh, Davos' chapters there. But, you know, so I think there is the case we made that Melisandre would be useful because she might, like, you know, like, pick up on something like, oh, I'm in danger. <laughs> and and realize that, like, the, you know, I don't know, like, the Tyrells are coming or that the wildfire is there. Like, there's there's a, a potential for her to be useful in, in that regard. And I think that that's, that's a, a definitely a fair point. I think for me, the overall point, though, is that I don't know if Stannis knows any of this. Like, I don't mm. know if Stannis knows that Melisandre always looks for danger to herself in the flames. I don't know if she's told him that. What, I don't know if Melisandre has told Stannis that she has powers that could control the wildfire. I don't know if she tried to make that case. We don't see that happen. So, uh, you know, in terms of trying to avoid presentism is basically what, you know, what I'm trying to get at here. What, is, what does Stannis know? And given what Stannis knows, I think it is foolish for him not to bring Melisandre. Because maybe she won't be useful. But what's the downside, man? True. Like, that. True. the only downside is she might get the credit which is what he really can't stand. Like, you know, that's the thing. Like, would Stannis even want the throne if Melisandre made it happen with a giant fireworks show? Because then he'd be like, mm -hmm. everyone thinks she's cool. So <laughs> ultimately, I think I think it's, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I have no idea what Melisandre could do. I think George is deliberately keeping that ambiguous. But like Stannis's whole thing is like maybe she can do more. I mean to find out. Well then, fucking this is the this is the show, man. <laughs> what do you have her for if not this? So yeah, I think he should have brought her. Well, I you know I was I was thinking about that too. Like the the, the thing that finally convinces Stannis not to bring Melisandre is that they're like, well, she's gonna get the credit, dude. You don't want that to happen. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, isn't Stannis's fleet and his army going to get the credit for Stannis taking taking King's Landing? Aren't there other people that are like pushing Stannis onto the Iron Throne here that actually deserve the credit here? I mean, I was talking about my grandfather earlier, like my grandfather refused, like was ordered and refused orders to wear his silver star by superior officers and got in trouble for it. And the rumor is that he wasn't promoted as general because he he refused to because he he never made up to to a full term a full general because he he would just tell superior officers to fuck off when they would like tell him to do these things mm -hmm. like he you don't he doesn't want the credit for the for taking 
He doesn't want the credit to go to anyone else besides himself. So does ultimately, does that make Stannis the type of guy that you we, you were talking about before that you're like, yeah, this guy fucking sucks because he just wants the credit all for himself for, for doing something that other people are, are doing for him, right? Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, yeah. the personal and political is hard to parse here. Like, you know, Stannis does acknowledge Davos as very important. Like he says to John, Davos was right and I was wrong. And good thing Davos was there because I was messing up. So he is willing to concede, I think, that, you know, he can be incorrect things and that not literally the entire universe is about him. I think Stannis is willing to get that far. I think the problem is it really just comes down to Robert and Renly and anything that gets remotely associated with Robert and Renly. And it's like, yeah, obviously Melisandre, you know, she literally killed Renly for you, dude. But it's still like someone getting credit for a battle specifically. Like, that's too much. It's like, you know, when when Asha was talking to Stannis in that one dance chapter, and it's going okay until she brings up Robert. And then Justin Massey is like, yeah, no, no, you gotta go walk away right now. No, 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 no. <laughs> Never mention Ixning on the Robert right. So, I, you know, I think I, th- I, I think that's that's ultimately... What, what what it is in terms of Stannis not bringing Melisandre. And I think, yeah, he just should have... He really just needs to get over that. I mean, you know, I know that, that that's easy for me to say, but, like, that, 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 that resentment, I think, is what makes him tragic and compelling to a certain extent because it's that's the whole inside. Like, you know, that's something he lost and just didn't have. But it's also like, you know, it's just they're both dead. <laughs> it's over. You you win. All the toys are yours. They're, they're, they're out of their rooms. And um, it's just, but I think, you know, I think that's, again, relatable because I think all of us have been or know people who, once you have a grievance, you start to love it after a while and starts to become part of your life. And it's like letting that go. It's like, but then who am I if I don't hate my brothers? What is my personality? Yeah, I think right. I get that. I I totally get that too, man. I, I, I definitely think that it becomes like a part of, of, of who you are. The, uh, the Hatfields and the, uh, the McCoys, you only know them because they hated each other, right? That's their entire personality is as a historical families. Mm-hmm. So I think that is going to wrap us up for a Clash Kings Davos three part two. No, my boy Stannis, <laughs> my boy Davos, survive. Which, of course, he will survive as we'll cover back with him and Storm of Swords. But yeah, I can't believe we're done another point of view for, for a Clash of Kings. It's true. Like, you know. we, got, we got two down and all the rest. And uh, after the Blackwater, the rest go one by one. After the battle is done, they get their final mm-hmm. chapters. You're so close to finishing a Clash of Kings, folks. Crazy. I really appreciate you joining us the, on this journey. And if you have enjoyed this journey through a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings, please consider rating and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Hit the thumbs up on YouTube and hit the uh, bell button uh, to get alerted whenever we're going to do one of these live casts. So, yeah, that would be awesome. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com you can find me at poorquentin on twitter or at poorquentin.com and you can find me at Brenda Beefish on twitter Brenda Beefish on red uh, website is wars and politics vice and fire dubwordpress.com we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on patreon Red Ralu himself who has renounced his allegiance to the squishers Lady of a Thousand Words Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle Septon Marybelt the Shoeless Sage Sister Winter Lady of the Wolfswood Nessie the Elusive Warden of the Neck Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way of Course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. 
Laura J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Jello Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbrake, Leader of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Narco-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker at the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Carly, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, and Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and the Smantle of the Patriarchy. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, so much for all your support. We really, really appreciate it. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Tyrion 13, in which Tyrion stares down his mushroom cloud and then shockingly decides to ride out to do battle himself. It's going to be almost as exciting as Davos 3, folks. We're going to flip back to the Tyrion side <laughs> and see some of the most uh, just viscerally impressive stuff in, in, in the whole series. Can't wait. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who watched us. Thank you again to all of our patrons, and we'll see you all next week for Tyrion 13.